It just so happened. It just so happened. Yeah. Have we got any composers in the audience? I can give us a beat if you want. Gosh, we've got time. Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Paulson, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 10th of November. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. It's the city which has been named the home of English sport, also a UNESCO city of literature, and has the largest publicly owned bus network in England. Yes, of course, it's Nottingham! Hooray! So we are performing as a show in the Nottingham Comedy Festival. Now in its 11th year, the festival aims to bring together both brand new and well-established comedians and give everyone an opportunity to enjoy comedy, whether they are performing or watching. Our venue tonight is the Castle Pub, a traditional city centre pub and restaurant sited opposite the historic gatehouse of Nottingham Castle. The building was designed by local architect Watson Fothergill in 1883, who designed over 100 unique buildings in Nottingham between 1864 and 1912, including the department store Jessup and Son, run in its early days by Mr Zebedee Jessup and William Daft. <laughs> and talking of daft people, let me introduce tonight's panel. So please welcome Lisa Vernon, Yay. Tommy Tomsky, Tony Cowards, and Sanjay Brown. Yay. So our first guest tonight is Lisa Vernon. Regular listeners to the podcast, uh, thanks Mum, will know that Lisa has already guested in two previous shows for this podcast, the ones recorded in Ludlow in June and in York in July. So we already know that Lisa is an expert in many aspects of medieval history and helmets. Over to you, Lisa. Um, it is a great honour to be invited to speak to such an eminent audience in such a prestigious venue. <laughs> <laughs> the theme of this groundbreaking history conference has enabled me to present a paper that draws together my three main research interests, the Midlands, sex, and Sean Bean. <laughs> <laughs> Let me first start with sex. It is disputed as to when sex was first invented. Uh, historians are unable to agree if it dates back to before the Romans, or in fact, it was very recent occurrence in 1968, evidenced by the film Barbarella. There may be parts of the home counties that have yet <coughs> to discover it. Evidence from 2,000-year-old Kama Sutra indicates sex was in use, but only for an elite, highly flexible few. <laughs> Shakespeare's writings suggest too much conversation and a little less action in the Tudor period. Uh, as an Anglo-Saxon historian, my own research has led me to postulate that sex, in fact, dates back to a fecund period of history roughly between 700 and 1066. Then followed an era where people stopped making love in haystacks 
and return to the safety of long nighties and the lights out. This was known as the Dark Ages. <laughs> Barring a brief period of perversity during the Restoration, this continued until 1928, when David Herbert Lawrence rediscovered sex and uh, attempted to share it with the world. Lady Chatterley's lover is the story of a relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman. It became notorious for its explicit descriptions and the use of four-letter words, such as A up, <laughs> reet, and ah then. <laughs> Until 1959, such purple passages could get a publisher imprisoned. In 1933, the royal family always at the forefront of sexual advances, <laughs> had a narrow escape when Lady Cynthia Colville was sent a copy by her son. She passed it on to Queen Mary, who was almost halfway through the book when George V confiscated it, saying he rather preferred his austere and regal wife as she was, without any how's your father, up against a tree. <laughs> he was also concerned for the well-being of the gamekeeper, and had no wish to move to Mansfield. <laughs> In 1960, Penguin Books published three million copies and were immediately taken to court for obscenity, based on the offensive use of the Midlands dialect and a fair bit of Anglo-Saxon. According to the court case, the word dock <laughs> or Ducky, <laughs> appears no less than 30 times. Various male parts, 17 times. <laughs> Body fluids, 23 times. What's that? <laughs> I'll explain later. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, 14 times. <laughs> the key factor in the discussion, in the decision to prosecute, was that Penguin proposed to sell the book for three and six. Cheap sex for the masses could not be allowed. And in his opening address, the prosecuting lawyer asked the jury, would you approve of your daughters reading this book? Because girls can read as well as boys. It is a book. Is it a book you would even wish your wife to read? And the answer from the witnesses, a university lecturer, and even a bishop, was yes. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> so on November the 10th, 1960, Penguin's unexpurgated paperback version of Lady Chatterley's Lover legally went on sale. Foils sold out in 15 minutes, and it seemed that sex was here to stay. <clears throat> but by the 1980s, sex was once again on the wane. The power cuts of the 70s and the looming recession led to coupling for warmth and economy. It required Sean Bean and a miniseries to remind people of the importance of getting wood. As axe in hand, he uttered the immortal lines, Eh, we both came off at the same time then. <laughs> Since then, sex has gone from strength to strength. And, ladies and gentlemen, when the soulless ugliness of the coal and iron midlands 
ever gets you down, pick up a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover. I was going to an end with a reading from the book, but it appears my pages are stuck together. <laughs> The 10th of November is International Accounting Day, so happy entering. <laughs> um, do we know the panel why it's celebrated on this particular day of the year? Because it's 10, 11, 12, I presume. Is that right? Oh, uh, interesting answer. 10, 11, 19. Mm -hmm. in, uh, well, in, uh, in 2012, it would have been. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, not for me to criticise your answer. No, uh, it, it's a tough one, the first question that I'm asking, Fernand, because it's the date in 1494 when Fra Luca Bartolomeo de Pacioli, or Luca Pacioli, published his book on bookkeeping practices. Okay, so who was Luca Pacioli? Well, he was born in Tuscany. Sometime around 1447, and for three years from 1472, was a Franciscan friar, then became a private teacher in Perugia. He then held a chair in mathematics, so must have been held in high esteem, though was probably disqualified from playing any games of musical chairs. <laughs> uh, chair. Anyway, uh, in 1497, he accepted an invitation from Duke Ludovico Sforza to work in Milan, there he met and lodged with Leonardo da Vinci teaching him mathematics and collaborating on projects with him. However, in 1499, Louis XII of France seized the city and drove out their patron, so Pacioli and Leonardo were forced to flee. Pacioli published several works in mathematics, while Leonardo went on to star in a movie of the franchise about turtles. <laughs> uh, Pacioli published a work entitled Summa di Arithmetica Geometria Propotioni e Propotiolinata, which included a section on accounting. He was only the second person to publish a work on the double-entry system of bookkeeping in Europe after the Croatian Benedetto Cotuli. Pacioli's system dramatically affected the practice of accounting in parts of Italy, revolutionised how business oversaw their operations and enabled them to improve their efficiency and profitability. His work ended up being used internationally as an accounting textbook up until the mid-16th century, and the essentials of double-entry accounting, for the most part, remained unchanged right up until the present day. Hence, Pacioli is known as the father of accounting and bookkeeping. And Pacioli died 502 years ago, on the 19th of June, 1517. So there you go. Our second guest tonight is Tommy Tomsky. And Tommy, you, I, didn't, I haven't actually got anything on you here, but you guessed it for us, didn't you, in, uh, let me think, in York. Yes, in York, didn't correct. you, the great York, Yorkshire French. Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll have to let you introduce yourself. Okay, I'm your Tommy Tomsky. Um, I'd self-described as the king of the comedy landfill, is probably the best way to describe me. I'm the king of something, I don't know what it is yet. My, incidentally, my mother is here today. Hi, Mum. So if on the podcast you only hear one person laughing, that will be the one person. <laughs> um, so um, uh, my five-minute segment is, it just so happens that on the uh, 1872, uh, November the 10th, uh, Dr. David Livingstone uh, was discovered by Stanley. Not for the first time, I imagine he existed before that day. <laughs> um, and the immortal words, uh, uh, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, were uttered on that day. Um, it's been an interesting one, um, researching this. 
I've, uh, in my research, I've discovered that Dr. David Livingstone, uh, originally a Scotsman uh, who basically wanted to become a missionary, went and became an explorer shortly after realising that, um, as you say, he still had those strong religious values, but his love for the African continent when he was exploring kind of overtook him and he wanted to introduce trade routes. And he also was vehemently against the slave trade, which was still rife in Africa at the time. Uh, a very good guy. Then I did research on Stanley. <laughs> Not such a great person, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, he was sent by um, the New York Herald to go and find um, Dr. Livingstone when Dr. Livingstone had been missing for a couple of months. What I would liken to the modern equivalent of Piers Morgan being sent by Fox News to find Michael Palin. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, <laughs> essentially that's that's the kind of person. So we'll get into how Stanley was not such a great chap in a second. Um, just uh, out of interest, the um, the publisher at the New York Herald at the time was uh, James Gordon Bennett Jr., who um, who basically commissioned um, uh, Stanley. So it was Henry Morton Stanley to go and look for David Livingstone. He passed up the opportunity by Alfred Bobby Dazzler Senior at the Chicago <laughs> Tribune, um, uh, but figured that the thousand pounds that he was offered that he could keep withdrawing to find uh, Dr. David Livingstone was much more of an attractive prospect. Um, uh, essentially, um, at the time that um, Dr. David Livingstone went missing, he went to Africa to discover the source of denial, um, <laughs> something that he would later struggle to come to terms with, <laughs> in all its irony. Um, uh, but essentially, he went to, uh, to find the source of denial, uh, went missing after a, a couple of months, and nobody heard any of dispatches from him. So uh, off Stanley went to go and find him. Um, Stanley arrived in Zanzibar in November, in, I think it was actually, is it March 1971? Uh, I might be wrong on the month of that year. Um, and he put together an expedition of 192 porters and carriers to help him with six tonnes of equipment, uh, which would last him two years. Now, something that's notable about Stanley, if you're on one of his expeditions, you've got a 50-50 mortality rate, basically. <laughs> You, half of the time people just died. He liked to flog porters. He was a very, very hard person when it came to motivating the people around him. Um, eventually, um, about a week before the, uh, the temple, which was the 3rd of November 1972, um, he came across, um, and it, this was on his journey, which was a thousand miles to Lake Tanganyika. Um, I think I pronounced that Tanganyika. Yeah, Tanganyika. Um, and he, uh, on his way there, obviously we were uh, a, a week away, and he met the he, he met murmurings of a white guy that the locals knew of that he was pretty sure was Dr. David Livingstone. He was approached by um, one of the uh, one of the people who were looking after Dr. David Livingstone, who did get malaria quite a lot. He was somewhat of an expert on it. One of the things I like actually about Dr. David Livingstone is he wrote books about his travels, but failed to put in those books actually some of the difficulties he had in travelling. He said he wanted to encourage people to go to Africa, which is fair enough, but that's like me encouraging people to go to some of the roughest pubs in Nottingham by writing a good pub guide about them. <laughs> So, um, uh, so essentially, um, he met up with this uh, with this carer of uh, 
uh, Dr. David Livingstone, in a, I think he was, a, say, a, a short way, way away from where he actually was based, and um, he said the words, uh, who the deuce are you, which I believe is um, that word, in, uh, for, for the purpose of the, uh, for the listeners at home, I'm holding up a sign that says F star star K. Uh, on a piece of paper. In Swahili. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, and then a short while afterwards, he um, met Dr. David Livingstone um, and uttered the immortal words, uh, Dr. Livingstone, I assume, um, which has been characterised as one of the most beautifully understated um, Victorian phrases of the day, which beautifully underlined and underpinned the, the moment of meeting him. Um, and as I say, it was a shame because uh, I think it was approximately a year or so, or less than a year afterwards, Dr. David Livingstone would have died. Um, he didn't want to go back. He loved Africa, which is, uh, is, is to his credit. Um, Dr. Well, uh, Stanley, uh, Henry Morton Stanley, on the other hand, um, when travelling back to Zanzibar, one of the porters had, and this is why I don't like Stanley, because one of the porters... <laughs> had a case with all of Stanley's journals, all his papers, but also with a diary of Dr. David Livingstone. And they were crossing a river which had flooded, and this porter, very close to drowning, was trying desperately to keep the box above his head. How do you think Stanley coped with this incident? Do you think he held out a hand? No, he pulled out his revolver and pretty much said to him, I will murder you in the face before you have a chance to drown, and the guy managed to scramble to shore, meaning that uh, Stanley's book, after his return, um, the colonial tips on how to be a lifeguard, <laughs> were, were available at all good bookstores. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that is pretty much everything. Oh, just a, a side note, um, as a big moustache enthusiast that I am, um, uh, they all had very impressive moustaches, including uh, James Gordon Bennett Jr., who had a 16-inch-like moustache. If you look at old pictures, it was huge, huge moustache. So that's where I think Movember came from anyway. I'm not sure. uh, but I shall leave it there. Thank you. On the 10th of November 1919, Mikhail Timofeyevich Kalashnikov was born. He was an inventor, military engineer, and a lieutenant general. He's most famous as the small arms designer who developed the AK-47 assault rifle and its improvements, the AKM and AK-74, as well as the PK machine gun and the RPK light machine gun. Now, Kalashnikov was the seventh of 19 children born into a peasant family in Kuria, in the USSR, not far from Kazakhstan, a village of about 4,000 people, and he nearly died of a childhood illness at the age of six. He actually wrote six books and also wrote poetry, uh, no example of which I could find online, unfortunately. Uh, the AK-47 he designed was found to be simple to operate, rugged and reliable under trying conditions, had a muzzle velocity of some 700 metres a second, a cyclic firing rate of 600 rounds per minute, and was capable of both semi-automatic and automatic fire. Now, he took pride in his inventions and in their reputation for reliability, emphasising, though, that the rifle is a weapon of defence, not a weapon of offence. But he did regret the weapon's uncontrolled distribution. Now, another advantage of the rifle's design was that it could easily be mass-produced. One estimate says there are now 200 million rifles in circulation, accounting for roughly 20% of the entire global stock of firearms as of 2015, uh, with a presence in almost 100 countries. 
Now, he claimed he never made any money from designing the AK-47. He retired with a state pension, but did receive some merchandising income, as the Kalashnikov names allowed to be used for other products, such as vodka, umbrellas, <laughs> and uh, knives. <laughs> now, I would have thought short-sleeved shirts would sell well if it was sponsored by a small arms manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a museum dedicated to Kalashnikov was opened in November 2013 in the schoolhouse in Kulia, where uh, Kalashnikov studied. Now, he donated numerous personal items to the museum, including an um, honorary professor's robe from Harvard University and a letter from the late Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, who had travelled to Russia in 2009 to personally congratulate Kalashnikov on his 90th birthday. Um, I hope there was a 90-gun salute in that case. Um, Kalashnikov was 94 when the museum was opened, but he was too ill to attend and died the following month. Uh, the museum is Korea's number one attraction on TripAdvisor. In fact, it's Korea's only attraction on TripAdvisor. <laughs> uh, one review notes that on the second floor there is a computer room where in the programme the boys can collect and disassemble weapons. Now... Uh, question number two for the panel, where does the name AK-47 come from? It comes from the letters on the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> the letters on your fridge, or just, yeah? No, it's like, you take the letters, you throw them on the floor, and... Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Any other thoughts? Well, the, uh, the 47 was 1947. Yes, indeed, yes. And, and then, therefore, the AK is Russian, which I didn't expect you to know. So it's um, Avtomat Kalashnikova. Automatic classic golf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so the AK-47 is very popular with shooting competitions in the US. From I started reading stuff online and thought mm, my history isn't going to look very good here. Um, but here's another question for you. So the rifle is on the flag of which country? Ooh, it's the, it's somewhere in Africa. Yeah. I think. yeah. Is it Mozambique? It is Mozambique. <laughs> Woo! Well done, Tony. Um, Adopted in 1983, the flag is crossed by a farming mattock, and both are superimposed on an open book, and the rifle pays homage to the crucial role the weapon played in the country's liberation movement. Now, it's one of four national flags among the UN member states that features a firearm. Can you guess what any of the other three might be? Did Stanley visit any of these <laughs> countries? Uh, <laughs> or Donald Trump. I could pretty much say no. <laughs> I don't think Stanley was anywhere near any of these things. There's a clue for you. Flag of Brazil's got quite a lot of stuff on it. Yeah, not Brazil. And it's not Grenada, is it? Oh! Very good. Unfortunately not, but it would be lovely if it was. So shall I say what they are? So it's. I was going to say where I come from, a sickle's a weapon, so. It's not really a firearm, is it? No. No. Um, so, <laughs> if my arms were on fire, it would be. So, look afterwards, you can look up the flags of Guatemala, Haiti, and Bolivia. Apparently, they all have a firearm. Which leaves me in a strange segue to Tony Coward. Uh, and again, I have nothing on you, but I, I do know Tony, so I do know that Tony's uh, a very well respected uh, comedian on the circuit, uh, does fantastic one liners and puns. One minus puns, and was in the UK Pun Championship finals not that many years ago. Is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself or forthcoming shows and uh, into your topic? So here's Tony Cowards. Thank cool. you. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, I, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast actually because I'm a big history buff myself. One of my favourite history facts uh, is about Henry VIII. Everyone loves Henry VIII and you learn about him in school. 
Uh, but I don't know if you were taught this, that Henry VIII's uh, favourite method of walking, Henry VIII's favourite method of walking, uh, of course, was ambling. Anyway, the thing I, that struck me today was I was looking at what happened on this day, uh, the 10th of November, and uh, in 1674, on the 10th of November, uh, as a result of the third Anglo-Dutch War, uh, probably probably the best of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, I think, isn't it? Which was, as they say, it's never as good as a sequel, but uh, it was pretty good. It's a bit like the Toy Story films, I think. Toy Story 3 was the best. But um, yeah, the third Anglo-Dutch War. Uh, and as provided in the Treaty of Westminster, uh, apparently the uh, Netherlands on this day uh, ceded New Netherlands to England. And New Netherlands was uh, the region sort of including what was then New Amsterdam, territory over there, so that's when, on this day in uh, 1674, that's when that all became part of the British Empire, um, which which I think is a great fact, I love that already, but I'm a big fan of uh, the band They Might Be Giants, do you know, do you know the band They Might Be Giants, famous for a song called Birdhouse in Your Soul, but they also did a song called uh, Istanbul, which was all about Istanbul, formerly being called uh, Constantinople, there's a line in there, I don't know if you remember it, it went, even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better way. Yeah. Uh, historically inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, uh, they didn't change the name from New Amsterdam to New York just because people liked it better that way. Uh, it was mainly a result of uh, lots of fighting. Um, in fact, uh, it started off, uh, obviously, the Dutch colonised that area and named it New Amsterdam. Uh, they uh, basically colonised the island of Manhattan, which apparently had no one living on it previously, which was what you kind of did in those days, and you found a piece of land where no one was living, even if it was surrounded by people that actually did live there, but you just planted a flag in it and claimed it for yourself. So uh, they colonised that island of Manhattan, uh, which was then pretty much all of what they called New Amsterdam. Uh, Manhattan, just interestingly, comes from the native name for the island, which I'm going to mangle the pronunciation here, I have no idea how this is pronounced, but it's Manahaktaniak, which apparently meant the place where we all get drunk. <laughs> uh, which obviously uh, is what the, uh, the word Weatherspoons in Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the Dutch, uh, Dutch colonised Manhattan and called it New Amsterdam. Um, and so they, now at the time, this is sort of, sorry, this will seem like a random fact, but these two things are interrelated. Uh, at the same time that the Dutch controlled uh, New Amsterdam, they were in control of the lucrative, believe it or not, the lucrative nutmeg trade <laughs> at the time. Which, uh, yeah, oh, you're, you're nodding, yeah. Uh, if you can imagine, the nutmeg, tri nutmeg trade at the time was a bit like, if you've ever seen the, the uh, TV show The Wire, uh, it was on a global scale, it was very similar to their control of the heroin trade. Yeah. Uh, the Dutch controlled certain corners, uh, the English, the Portuguese, the various other nationalities uh, had that kind of sewn up. And the, uh, the uh, British though, which really annoyed the Dutch, had uh, control of one of the major nutmeg producing islands which was called Run, or Palau Run in Indonesia, which was a tiny island, uh, but it was an island controlled by the British in the middle of the Dutch uh, area that they controlled. And this goes <coughs> to what became known as the Spice Wars, uh, which, it's Spice Wars, it's not, uh, that's not 
and a person from Birmingham attempting to uh, name what the uh, genre includes Star Wars in. Uh, <laughs> Spice Wars? <laughs> um, so that's only one man cue here. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so uh, to maintain their monopoly on nutmeg, the Dutch needed to make sure they were the only ones that could grow it. And apparently even the nutmeg that they sold, uh, they dipped in lime so it couldn't be planted and used to grow more plants. Now, I'm, I'm, I was slightly confused when I, I read that because I thought, ooh, lime-infused nutmeg. You could probably, <laughs> probably buy that at an artisanal farmer's market now, but I, I believe it might be lime, the uh, quick lime. Anyway, so the Dutch weren't happy that the British were controlling some of the nutmeg, so they broke onto the island of Run, and uh, whilst it was undefended by the British, they burnt down all the nutmeg trees. Oh. Which is quite sad, isn't it? So they control that. Anyway, uh, so this led to the Royal Navy uh, sending four frigates to New Amsterdam to take it over. So they basically invaded New Amsterdam. It became New York for, for a little while. Uh, they renamed it. Uh, it was called New York, by the way, because it was named after the Duke of York, who was uh, the, uh, I think he was the brother of the then reigning monarch, and then went on to become James II. Uh, it was a, it was a, New York was kind of, New Amsterdam, New York was kind of fought over quite a lot by the Dutch and the, and the British. It changed hands several times. Uh, apparently it was then in 1673, the, uh, the Dutch briefly reoccupied New York's, New York City, and they then decided to rename it New Orange. <laughs> Which I don't know if uh, they should have done a TV show about that, shouldn't they, called uh, Orange is the New York. <laughs> New Orange is the New York. I don't know if actually they were, by calling it New Orange, they were preempting uh, a person who was uh, the associate with New York, obviously, to this present day, Donald Trump. Um, basically, Orange, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, so uh, so yeah, so uh, this is uh, it's very <coughs> convoluted, but basically, uh, yeah, it was uh, the British. Then, uh, the, during the treaty, they decided there was a, an arrangement uh, they came to with the Dutch, where they agreed to give the Dutch the island of Run, uh, and uh, the Dutch offered in exchange uh, New York. Uh, so there'd be no more fighting over New Amsterdam, New York. Uh, the British actually didn't want New York. Uh, the British wanted uh, sugar-growing plantations in Suriname, uh, but reluctantly agreed to, uh, to take New York for a tiny little island in Indonesia uh, that didn't really have any nutmeg trees left. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a pretty good deal, really. Um, yeah, because uh, now the island of Manhattan is obviously worth, uh, worth trillions of dollars, uh, and the island of Run, Run sorry, in uh, Indonesia is worth about 15 pence. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, and it went on for years, uh, I've read here, that uh, almost 150 years later, uh, the British re-invaded Run, actually, because nutmeg was still uh, a big precious commodity. People were obviously still keen for their fix of nutmeg. <laughs> and they actually went to Run, stole the nutmeg trees, and replanted them on the island of Grenada. Mm -hmm. And uh, in uh, common with our theme about flags, now, they do this, and I'll finish on this final fact, Grenada is now amongst the world's leading producers of nutmeg, and uh, it's the only country to feature nutmeg on its flag. <laughs> Excellent. So there we go. That was uh, some rambling nonsense about the Dutch <laughs> occupation of New York and New Amsterdam. Tony Cowers. I do think he missed a trick there, though, because you're talking about when it's called orange. Uh, yeah. So the administration there, the civil servants, would have been mandarins. 
I just um, wondered if it was governed by a guy called Terry. <laughs> <laughs> it could be in the Big Apple. <laughs> okay. Uh, so on this day, 10th November in 2003, panel, which one-time president of Zimbabwe died? Oh, what's his name? Ian something. Ian Smith. No, it was the man who served as the first president of Zimbabwe from 1980 to 1987, Canaan Banana. Oh, yeah. 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 And preached a form of black liberation theology. Now, Banana became vice president of the African National Congress, but was forced to flee Rhodesia, going first to Japan and then to Washington, D.C. He was arrested on his return in 1975, although released a year later, he was kept under house arrest. He joined the Zimbabwe African National Union, or ZANU, led by Robert Mugabe, which was dedicated to overthrowing the Ian Smith administration. After the Lancaster House Agreement and Zimbabwe's independence, he became its first head of state, uh, genuinely making Zimbabwe a banana republic. <laughs> As president, he did not always command respect, and a law had to be passed in 1982 to prevent Zimbabweans from joking about his surname. He obviously wasn't very thick-skinned, <laughs> just because he wasn't seen as that appealing. <laughs> anyway, uh, thankfully Donald Trump hasn't gone that far. Uh, but neither did the following politicians. Number one, the guy who ran for county commissioner in North Carolina called Ben Bushyhead. Number two, former House representative from New Hampshire called Dick Sweat. <laughs> Number three, former governor of Idaho, Butch Otter. <laughs> Number four, the guy who ran for governor of Texas in 2006. Yes, that was Kinky Friedman. <laughs> Number five, the former member of the California State Senate, Dick Mountjoy. <laughs> and, of course, who could forget the Dutch Senator, Tiny Cox. <laughs> anyway, in 1987, Banana stepped down as president and was succeeded by Prime Minister Robert Mugabe, who became the country's executive president for the next 30 years. Banana married Janet Mbuyezwe in 1961 and they had four children. But in 1997, Banana was arrested following accusations made during the murder trial of his former bodyguard, who had killed another officer who had taunted him about being Banana's homosexual wife. Now, Banana was found guilty of 11 charges of sodomy, attempted sodomy and indecent assault. He denied all charges, saying that homosexuality is deviant, abominable and wrong. But Janet Banana later confirmed her husband's homosexuality, even though she considered the charges against him to be politically motivated. Banana served eight months in prison and was defrocked. Any banana jokes from the panels? Yes, it's not illegal in this country. Did they split up afterwards? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it, like it. Do you, do you know that they, um, they broke the news uh, of his death in a really awful way? Oh, yes, we have no banana. <laughs> I like, I like the fact that he had four children. I think it's one banana, two banana, three banana. <laughs> 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 of course, so if, when they went to bed, they were probably bananas in pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs>
We can only do it because it's not illegal in this country. Yeah. <laughs> Anything from Sanjay to absolute mix. No, I'd like to know what the criteria for attempted sodomy is. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done much? In it's, that um, it's when you use a banana. <laughs> there we go. Yes, it's, it's, it's ripe for humour, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, time is against us. So, quickly moving on to our fourth panellist, so Sanjay Brown. Uh, now, from what I know about Sanjay, he turned to comedy after being rejected for ordination by the Church of England for suggesting that Jesus' father, Joseph, was a plumber rather than a carpenter. Um, he's completed 14 gigs so far, fulfilling Neil Young's prophecy that it's better to burn out than to fade away. Um, he owns a cat, a wife, and nine albums by Prince, in that order. <laughs> uh, he's a keen gardener and banned from every pet shop in Lancaster. <laughs> I don't think we've got time to explain, but over to you, Sanjay. Thank you. I can't really comment on it. It's an ongoing investigation by <laughs> the Lancashire Police and the RSPB. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is my... Um, Treaties. Uh, it just so happened on the 10th of November, 1483, uh, Martin Luther was born. Now, Martin Luther, as most people will know, was the German monk, most famous for leading the Reformation by uh, rejecting the Pope's control over German uh, church work and um, instating the primacy of the teachings of Jesus over the teachings of the papacy. He uh, led Germany to break away from the Central European uh, control. Uh, sort of a 16th century Nigel Farage. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, born in Eiselben in Central Germany and grew up in a nice middle class family before going to university to study law like a nice middle class young man. Uh, however, he soon became bored of studying law as it's quite boring. So he switched to theology. Uh, in 1505, while returning from university, he was almost struck by lightning and cried out, Help! Saint Anna! I will become a monk! <laughs> Similar thing happened to me. I woke up in a travel lodge in Doncaster. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I no longer drink gin. <laughs> uh, Martin Luther became a doctor and professor of theology, as well as a monk and was uh, sent to Rome a few years later to petition on behalf of his Augustinian brothers. What he found in Rome didn't really impress him. Uh, he wrote, There is a saying in Rome, Blessed is the mother whose son reads a mass on Saturday in St. John's. I should like to have made my mother blessed, but it was too crowded and I could not get in, so I ate smoked herring instead. <laughs> the words of a great man. <laughs> when he returned from Rome, he became more outspoken against the Catholic Church, which culminated in the famous nailing of the 95 treaties, or theses, to uh, the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, which was not only heresy, but also criminal damage. He was uh, summoned um, to answer before both uh, Pope Leo X, and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. His uh, treaties were against the practice of indulgence, <coughs> Catholic indulgence, basically. So you could do good deeds, including charitable donation, for uh, in return for a reduction in your time of penance, either on earth or in purgatory. You 
could you could basically um, do nice things and, and get a little bit less time at saying sorry for the things you had done wrong. However, by the Middle Ages, this had kind of de degenerated to um, being able to purchase forgiveness uh, from the pardoners that you had go going around um, uh, Europe, as uh, Chaucer had in, in uh, the Canterbury Tales. It'd be something like £500 for lust, £700 for greed, £120 for standing next to someone on public transport and sniffing. Um, it, was, uh, it wasn't a very nice business. Leo X at uh, the time was trying to rebuild uh, St. Peter's Basilica, which is a deeply expensive kind of a job, so uh, he needed the cash. Yeah, Martin Luther wasn't really a great fan of this, so as I say, he um, stood up to uh, this and was summoned to the representatives of both Leo and um, Charles V. Um, he uh, made the famous statement that, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise when challenged to recount his beliefs. He probably then ran away <laughs> before they could burn him, which is probably quite sensible. <laughs> He then returned to Germany to um, become a nutmeg farmer. That's <laughs> a callback. He, uh, he returned to Germany where he uh, translated the Bible to um, uh, take the service away from Latin and let people understand all that stuff in the Bible about talking snake and a man that lives inside a whale <laughs> and a man that has two of every animal on his boat. That must have been there. Uh, Remarkable. <clears throat> uh, Luther's legacy is, uh, is, is a positive one. There are negatives, of course. Towards the end of his life, um, he, as many of us do, moved towards the right wing, um, publishing some unfortunate kind of treaties, including one entitled Against Jews and Their Lives. He really kind of Mel gibson himself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was also, of course, the conflicts that came from the schism between the Catholic Church and the Protestants, the Thirty Years' War, the Spanish Inquisition, the Troubles in Ireland, uh, sectarian tensions in Scotland, the Eighty Years' War in the Netherlands, although that was also involved in that way, the <laughs> French Wars of Religion, the Huguenots, um, the sacking of the monasteries, uh, the Hundred Years of uh, Persecution, of the Protestants and Catholics across Europe, parts of the English Civil War, etc. <laughs> Apart from that, though, <laughs> some positives. The Reformation is seen as a major contributing factor to the move away from superstition towards enlightenment knowledge and the availability of information to all people. The spirit of the Reformation lives on today. In 1934, an American pastor named Michael King was sent to the Baptist World Alliance in Berlin. He was so impressed by the spirit of the Reformation that he changed the name of both himself and his son to Berlin is Wunderbar. <laughs> That's a joke. He changed his name and the name of his son to Martin Luther King, senior and junior. And of course, Martin Luther King, junior, became a great hero 
of the 60s civil rights movement in America. So let us say thank you very much, Mr. Martin Murphy. You weren't a bad lad, and you were born on the 10th of November, 1483. <laughs> so we come to the second half of the show, which might actually be a quarter of the show, uh, where we uncover some alternative histories of Nottingham. Now, there are over 700 caves beneath Nottingham streets. The city's name is hinted at in the Welsh tradition of an earlier Brythonic name being something like Tig Gwokabach, a meaning place of caves. Now, the Nottingham Enclosure Act of 1845 made it illegal for people to rent out caves in Nottingham, and the law is still in force. Now, presumably, the ancient inhabitants wanted to gentrify up from caves, as later they came to be ruled over by the Saxons. Unfortunately, as the Saxon chieftain was named Snot, so the city became known as Snottingham, the town of Snot people. <laughs> this is obviously not the place where it's going to get a laugh, is it? So, um, <laughs> uh, much later in 1782, the German traveller C.P. Morris wrote, Of all the towns I've seen outside London, Nottingham is the loveliest and neatest. Everything had a modern look, and a large space in the centre was hardly less handsome than the London Square. A charming footpath leads over the fields to the highway, where a bridge spans the Trent. Nottingham, with its high houses, red roofs and church steeples, looks excellent from a distance. Uh, especially from 127 miles away in London. <laughs> uh, Nottingham's home to the world's oldest professional association football club, Notts County, formed in 1862. The club predates the football association itself. There were no matches played in Notts County's first season, as they had to wait for their first opponent, Stoke City, to be formed in 1863. <laughs> um, Petter, people for the ethical treatment for animals, have lobbied to get Nottingham to change its name to Not Eating Ham. <laughs> uh, people obviously too pig-headed to do that. Uh, well, it'd be irrational. Uh, onto the topic of the Sheriff of Nottingham. We couldn't have a show on Nottingham without the Sheriff of Nottingham, guys. So, um, in the legends of Robin Hood, Nottingham Castle, which is uh, just a, literally a stone's throw from here, don't throw stones at the castle, uh, was occupied by the Sheriff of Nottingham and the supporters of Prince John when King Richard the Lionheart returned from the Crusades, but Richard besieged the castle and captured it. The Sheriff is generally depicted as an unjust tyrant who mistreats the local people and subjects them to unaffordable taxes, whereas Robin Hood is depicted as a highly skilled archer and swordsman who fights against the sheriff, steals from the rich and the sheriff in order to give to the poor, assisted by his fellow outlaws known as the Merry Men. Now, the Sheriff of Nottingham was historically the office responsible for enforcing law and order in Nottingham and bringing criminals to justice. So, introducing the panel. Uh, the first literary reference to Robin Hood was in about 1380. So when do you think was the first position of Sheriff of Nottingham created? Probably after that, the Tories. It's about 70 years later. Yeah, yeah 1449. So the, the, the office is sometimes confused with that of the High Sheriff of Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and the Royal Forest, a position which had existed since 1068. Yeah, and then there's the Low Sheriff. Yes. Which is a quite recent occurrence in the oh, books. Right. <laughs> ah, yes. um, the reference to the high sheriff was like a drug scandal. <laughs> <laughs> and the Omar sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> was a film star. Um, so it could possibly have been based, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham, on William de Wendenard. Do you know anything about him? I'm looking at Lisa because you're the expert. Yeah, he was quite well yeah. known um, for attacking people with cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> with a spoon. 
Um, not knife attacks in those days. No, though. and that's uh, actually where the real name Weatherspoon's comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Weatherspoon. Yes, it was Weatherspoon. So, yeah. uh, from 1450 till 1835, the officer's sheriff was shared between two people, one of whom may have been chosen by the mayor and the other by the town council. And the sheriffs uh, were, had to collect rents and taxes and so on. Um, ne next question. Of about, I could count, 956 sheriffs since 1449, how many do you think have been women? Uh, I think the current one is a lady, I believe. She is. Yes. Okay, so that's one. I'm <laughs> one. One. Should we say one? Ten. Yeah, seven. There's seven. seven out of 956. So a bit, a bit balancing out these stats, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> the first one was in 1931. I was going to mention the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves film from 1991. Is that one that we all enjoyed and the historical? Um, I imagine Sean Connery enjoyed it, isn't it? The most he's ever been paid for the shortest amount of time he's been on screen. Yeah. Uh, as you all know, I, uh, I did the, the walk for charity, which is the Prince of Thieves walk. You start off at Dover and you walk to Nottingham via Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> it took me three weeks and I had a clue where I was going. As we go late at night, the motorways are always closed, aren't they? There's always diversions. Uh, there's also someone who uses a telescope in the film, which is quite clever. It's about 200 years before it was invented. There's a reference to a wristwatch as well. Was it? So a wristwatch? Yeah. <laughs> well, a digital one? <laughs> yeah, no, no, just like regular analogue one. And even so, it's about three or four hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> I looked into it, my favourite bit though, apparently, I looked at this. Uh, there's, a, there's a point where obviously Robin is uh, stealing lots and lots of the money, and the sheriff of Nottingham meets up with his uh, henchmen, as you would call them, and they tell him that he's apparently stolen three or four million. Uh, of whatever the currency was they're currently using. Uh, this at a time in 1194, then the total revenue of the exchequer was 25,000. <laughs> uh, so if you scale up three or four million uh, at that time to today's value, he'd stolen 250 billion pounds. <laughs> so, so I'd say Prince of Thieves was probably underselling him a little bit. He was doing pretty well. That was tax evasion. <laughs> Yeah, I think it actually was Bernie Madoff that was uh, yeah. <laughs> probably good. I mentioned the, the Merry Men there. If you could hear little John today, what would he sound like? He'd sound a bit like Sean Bean. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you're obsessed with Sean Bean. So, yeah. to, I mean, to be honest, I know I am from Nottinghamshire, but I'm not a big fan of the Robin Hood. I'm not a big fan of Robin Hood. He is in essence, a, a mugger. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's whatever his motivations, he is mugging people with a big sword. And, I mean, if I did that and then said I was giving it to the poor, I would, it's still a crime. <laughs> so, I have to say. So very much on the sheriff's side. It's like, yes, yes. Yeah. There's law and law order. And order. That's, yeah. That is Boris's... Mandate, and I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, his defence, though, he was literally doing it for charity, wasn't he? So he was the world's first chugger. <laughs> so he was a chugger, mugger, bugger. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I did ask the question then what would little John sound like today? What does he sound like today? Yes. 
It's a trick question. Does he mute? Well, it's the name of the ten and a half ton bell in Nottingham Council House, which sounds out every fifteen minutes. Apparently, uh, it's the deepest toned bell and the loudest in Britain. Can be heard up to seven miles away. So, yeah. They wanted to use it for Big Ben. Yes, which I was about to say. So, so no, 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 please join in. So the council have offered the loan of the bell in case Big Ben should ever fall silent. So they're very generous. Big Ben is silent at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Not sure. Maybe that's why we can't hear Little John. Then. Well, I think they're using a recording at the moment. It always happens. People get famous in Nottingham and then they move down to London. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that what happened to Brian Blessed? You could hear him for seven miles away. <laughs> uh, okay, the, the second topic. Unless there's anything else you want to say. He's doing all right, isn't he? He's doing all right, Brian Blessed. Yeah. Him business is booming. <laughs> 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 it certainly is. <laughs> yes. So a uh, second topic I was going to introduce was the Goose Fair. Again, could hardly not mention the Goose Fair until yeah. the show about Nottingham. So it's a travelling fun fair held at the Forest Recreation Grounds during the first week of October with over 500 attractions and half a million visitors annually. So question for the panel, why is it called the Goose Fair? It was named after a traditional rugby match between the citizens of Nottingham and the geese of Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> it took place on the forest recreation ground, which is where Goose Fair still is. You, they would get the ducks at one, uh, the geese, rather geese, <laughs> in one corner, the, the people in the other, and there would be a big loaf of bread in the middle, and they would all run towards it and uh, see who got most bread. It's true story. I actually thought it was named by people who were big fans of uh, the 1986 film Top Gun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was actually in honour of Maverick's co-pilot, who tragically died in an ejector seat accident. <laughs> Multiple theories, though. It did spark the cheese riots, did the Goose Fair. So uh, I don't know if it would be a cheese in the middle rather than a loaf of bread, although I don't know how geese are with cheese. Are they allowed to, are, are geese lactose intolerant, do we know? Is there any experts on that in the audience? <laughs> no. It's a history show, not a biology show. It's hard uh, to feed them bread. Uh, well, uh, the, the answer um, which I saw about the goose fair is because um, people went there to buy geese. <laughs> but that's very, uh, very tame, isn't it? Staring us in the face. <laughs> So um, a royal charter was granted by Edward I in 1284 for having the fair, although it was already established in the city, it goes actually back to Saxon times, and it used to be held on 21st September, but with the change of the calendar in, uh, to the Gregorian uh, in 1752, uh, that's why it's now held a little later at the start of October. Now another question for the panel, why was the fair cancelled in 1646? Plague. Sorry, that's the, the only way research yes. I did. It was the plague. Didn't any more interesting answers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry. No, that's fine. It was literally the only thing I've written <laughs> down factually <laughs> on this bit of paper. Well, I, I thought it was because um, the person who was supposed to be doing the social media for it didn't do it properly. And um, the information <laughs> hadn't been out to the people, and they're like, yeah, there's no point. People aren't going to come this year. We might as well cancel it. Yeah. Didn't put a Facebook event out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure, sure it wasn't. Sixteen forty-six is only just after quarter to five, isn't it? So, because uh, everyone called in for their tea. <laughs> <laughs> the theories, but I, uh, I read it was plague, uh, and again, 
during the two world wars, the 20th century era, of course, now fell. Um, so, yes, we, we, we've hinted at this, but what triggered a riot in 1764? Tommy's ruined it. Yeah, I have. It was, it, was, it was the price of cheese. I thought it was a Kaiser cheese. No, it, price of cheese. <laughs> You're going deaf. Uh, no, the price of cheese was uh, too much, um, so everyone just started nicking the bits of cheese. They um, tossed it down what's now known as Wheelergate. I imagine that's because of them wheeling the cheese down. But the great thing about that was the mayor, who was like, no, don't take all the cheeses, got bowled over by, by cheese, which I just, I don't know why I find that so hilarious, but one of the things is two inventions that later came out in Nottingham would have really helped him. One was uh, ibuprofen, and the second was shin pads. Um, so, Look out, cheese! <laughs> The official countdown to Goose Fair is marked by the appearance of Goosey. Uh, apparently, this is a fair's giant goose mascot. In the run up to the fair, the two metre high fiberglass and timber statue is installed on a roundabout on Mansfield Road, adjacent to the Forest Recreation Ground. The annual tradition starts in the 1960s. Uh, the fair is officially opened each year with a ceremonial ringing of a pair of silver bells by the Lord Mayor of Nottingham. Now, while living in London, uh, we've already heard about D.H. Lawrence, uh, between 1908 and 1912, D.H. Lawrence would return home to Nottingham every year to visit the Goose Fair, so he obviously thought quite highly of it. In 1910, he even wrote a short story called Goose Fair, published in 1914. And the uh, final facts I've got on the Goose Fair, there are two other established Goose Fairs in the UK, so there's the Goosey Fair in Tavistock in Devon, and the even smaller Michaelmas Goose Fair in Coleyford, so the Boot family, uh, born and raised in Nottingham, created a chain of pharmacies Boots. So I'll just I'll just open it up. I don't want to do all the talking. So uh, what, what have we got on Boots? Um, um, I know that I can't have been the first person to have gone into a Boots when I've been on my way to a date and I've had no money and gone and sprayed the free sample after shame. <laughs> I just wonder, have they been doing that since Boots started uh, in the 18th century? I do know that boots started off as sandals, but they've really grown. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, here's a question then for you. So, in the 1945 cinema adaptation of Brief Encounter, Laura, the heroine, if you like, is seen visiting a branch of boots. What does she do there? Uses the toilet. She, does it. she doesn't use the toilet. No. no. Um, eye test. No, not yeah. an eye test. Does she get by one of their very reasonably priced lunchtime meal? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not. I possibly dispute about reasonably priced, but no, not a meal deal. No, she exchanges her library book as part of her weekly routine. Shall I explain? So. Uh, between 1898 and 1966, many branches of Boots incorporated a lending library department known as Boots Book Lovers Library. Boots Book Lovers Library was a circulating library, so they were an important cultural institution in Britain and America, and they basically gave the rising middle class access to a broad range of reading material. They were run by Boots the Chemist and a chain of pharmacies in the United Kingdom. It began in 1898 at the instigation of Jesse Boots' wife Florence and closed in 1966, 
following the passage of the Public Libraries and Museums Act 1964, which required councils to provide free public libraries. So it was a way of allowing people to get books if they paid a subscription and paid a small amount of money to get to see the latest books. The Boots used to do that. They also have an orchestra. Boots have an orchestra. Were you just going to buy a cello? Uh, well, I think you can go in and play an instrument. I think they're short of, what's the word, instrumentalists, <laughs> musicians at the moment. They're doing um, a concert this, this coming Saturday. Oh, they're doing a concert this Saturday. Not working the time for the podcast. <laughs> yes. One more thing about the libraries. Uh, John Betjeman had a satirical poem called Westminster Abbey, written in 1940, and he mentions Boots Libraries in it. But it is satirical. But he says, think of what our nation stands for. Books from boots and country lanes, free speech, free passes, class distinction, democracy and proper drains. That would be best read in the accent of Jacob Rees-Mogg, of course. can't do it. Um, so final question then, which is kind of related to boots in a different way. So what is RD13621, better known as RB1472, better known as? Anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> It's already been mentioned, actually. Plague? No. Uh, Tommy mentioned it earlier. It's mm -hmm. an ibuprofen. Uh, it's ibuprofen, yes. It's the audience that are better educated. Um, so that was developed by Dr Stuart Adams uh, from his house. Dr Adams began his work in a living room of the Victorian house on the outskirts. Of the Boots Research Department having been partially destroyed during World War II bombing raids. So ibuprofen started off in someone's house with a doctor working on stuff. Was he wearing shin pads at the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got time for the shin pads, unfortunately. Uh, we really uh, Tommy, Tommy and I are actually uh, inventing penicillin, a new form of penicillin at our house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you're working on something between you. Know, <laughs> heavy coals you've got. But yes, we've run out of time, so please give your thanks to the panellists that we've had tonight. So we've had Lisa Vernon, <laughs> Tommy Consby, Tony <laughs> Coward. And Brown. I do have one final on this day, and I promise you it's brief. Now, the final words come from the Welsh actor Richard Burton, who was born on 10th of November 1925. Died in 1984, partly as a result of um, drinking too much alcohol, basically. And uh, three little quotes from him. So, one, when I played drunks, I had to remain sober because I didn't know how to play them when I was drunk. <laughs> and, uh, because he was Welsh, number two, he grew up among heroes who went down the pit, who played rugby, told stories, sang songs of war. And then number three, the Welsh are all actors. It's only the bad ones who become professional. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Yay!